0: I want to say that I'm grateful to you that I can say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And there is joy in being together here with your other children. And, Father, it is a privilege to be in church and privilege to be with these people because of you, because you are our shepherd. You are our refuge. You are our strength. You are our, our Lord. You are our hope. And we just praise you for all, the list could go on into eternity of who you are and your greatness, your sovereignty. And we thank you that you allow us to speak with you and that you sent Jesus, that we have that mediator. The price is paid, and we now come boldly into your And I thank you, God, for the message that you will be sharing with us this morning about more of who we are, how you see us as your church, as your children. So I pray just for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for him. I don't pray for him, but I just pray not for him, but the indwelling that he would be speaking clearly to Paul this morning to communicate your thoughts, and your ways. And I ask this in Jesus' name.
1: Um, I don't know anything better than to have your wife pray for you before you preach. We've been on several long hikes over these last weeks. I do hope you're not growing weary of those hikes because there is still quite a distance for us to go on this trail. We started our hike on Pentecost Sunday, and on Pentecost Sunday we saw that there the birth of the church, and we saw that the birth of the church was not man's idea, but it was God's idea, and that he planned it before time began. It was a wonderful thing to see that the church is not man's idea, it is God's. Then we climbed the next mountain, and we looked down from what I called Christ's perspective, And we looked down on the church as a building, as God's building project. And we learned that Christ is the chief cornerstone of that building. We learned that everything is laid in reference to him. He is the one who lays the leveling line, justice. And he is the one who lays the plumb line, which is his righteousness. We saw that each of us who are part of the family of God, part of Christ building project, that we are living stones. None of us have anything particularly unique about us as stones. We're all stones, but that's a good thing, because every stone laid upon the foundation leans up against every other stone laid upon the foundation and laid along the wall, and we support one another, and we support the cause of Christ in that building. And then we climbed to the top of the peak last week and we looked down from, again, Christ's perspective upon the body of Christ. And we saw that each of us are beautifully gifted for the health and working of the body and that we are joined together by God, for God. And here's where we begin to see the uniqueness of each of us in this body of Christ. It's where we see this amazing, amazing, diversity of people brought into unity, again, by God, for God. Today we're going to climb a little different peak. And the name of this peak is time. I know that's probably a little strange and maybe not someplace you thought we were going. Um, And Cindy, I will cue you when I want you to change slides, okay? I forgot to tell you that ahead of time. Um, I know it's maybe not where we expected to to go, but I promised that today we would look at the church as the bride of Christ, and we will. And we will. (laughs) But we must trek here at the mountain that I call time, for just a little while, because there's some perspectives that we need. We're very familiar with this mountain because we all live at the foot of it, and we are all, in fact, bound to this mountain. It is our home, time. This mountain is very different than the other ones we've trekked because the perspective that we're going to look from is not at first Christ's because we're not going to look down. And in fact, we're going to focus in on God's perspective here. And the reason it's different here is because we're talking about time versus eternity. And I hope you will see that, and I hope it becomes clear as we move along God's perspective is not on this peak, the peak of time. No, his perspective is very far ahead of that, very far above that. But, you know, he loves us. And even though we can't climb that high, because the air is too thin, and our eyes are just too clouded to really see clearly from his perspective, yet... By using the glasses that he's provided for us, the field glasses that I've been talking about all month, that is the Spirit of God within us and the Word of God before us, by using those glasses, we will see everything we need to see. We will not see everything there is to see. And we will not probably see everything we really want to see because it is in eternity still from the top of the mountain, we're going to direct our gaze, not downward, but outward. We're going to look at two horizons. We're going to face one horizon, which I'm calling the present, and then we're going to turn around and we're going to look at another horizon, which I'm calling the past. And from that vantage point, we're going to see some very important things. But before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as as we look through your Word, the lens that you have given us and your Spirit within us to help us to see clearly through those lenses, we ask you to open our hearts and minds to see this thing you call the Bride of Christ. I pray, Lord God, you give us a vision and an understanding of this, your work, um, in new and fresh ways. I pray, Lord God, that as we look outward, that we see the wonderful working of your building, your body, into the bride. And that as we look, we see, Lord God, clearly. And I pray, Lord God, that then as we look up, Allowing the angel of God to show us Christ's bride that we see clearly again. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. This is kind of one of the focus passages for us. It's certainly not the only one. And it's on page 1232 of your pew Bibles. Um, I'm going to read it. Verses 6 through 9. Tom's already read it, but I'm going to read it again. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder or peals of thunder sorry crying out hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and her his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to wear, to be clothed. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. When we think of the Bride of Christ, this usually is the passage we come to first. Um, It's the one probably the most quoted when you talk about the Bride of Christ. But I'm going to submit to you that I really don't think this is the best place for us. It's not the best vantage point for us because this is in the future. And like it or not, the future is always clouded to us because we see only what has been revealed to us of the future and we see through a glass dimly if you will like Paul put it in 1st Corinthians 13 in fact the future is even really beyond our imagination as you read through revelation you you feel the tension uh, of John trying somehow with human words to describe the glories that he's being shown to to find the words necessary to describe adequately so that we might see. And I submit that it was very difficult. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We have but a glimpse In Revelation. So I want you to come with me to a different spot on the top of this particular mountain we call time for a better view of the bride. This spot looks outward to the horizon of the present. And when we turn around, we'll see the horizon of the past. And we must look at both of these horizons in order to really not miss the beauty of the bride of Christ. And so the first horizon we're going to look at is the horizon of the present. And what do we see regarding brides and weddings and ceremonies? Well, in the context of human brides and marriages and engagements and all of that, it usually starts with an engagement. Not always anymore, but usually. But today, engagement is really not much more for most people other than a time to experiment physically with each other. It's a time of enjoying the fruit of marriage without the labor or the love that really makes the covenant beautiful. We call it no-cost pleasure. I find that interesting. Or at least we hear it talked about that way. And often I wonder if we haven't also began to buy into that. But I ask you, If we asked all of the aborted children about the costs of such pleasure, what do you think they would say? That there is no cost? And if we asked all the mothers who bought into the lie and killed their children because of the free pleasure, what do you think they would say? People, there is always a cost. You cannot break God's moral law and not pay a price, a heavy price. You cannot escape it. No matter how loudly you shout, demanding your rights, you cannot escape the cost. And then in today's world comes the wedding ceremony, the day of the wedding. And usually these are grand and lavish and expensive venues they're held in. Rarely are they held in churches anymore, in worship houses. And then we see the brides. They're something else. They are painted and sculptured, layers and layers of makeup, perfectly polished nails, coiffured hair, jewelry chosen carefully so that everything dingles and dangles beautifully together. But it's all fake, it's painted on. It really isn't true beauty. And then there's the beautiful white dresses that they wear, all flowing with yards and yards of fabric. And what do you call those things? Trains that look like you could put a train on it. They go back so far. But you know what? They no longer signify the purity of the bride. And then there's the ceremonies themselves. They are replete with pomp. There's all sorts of music and showmanship and grandeur in the wedding ceremony. But they're very short on substance. They are filled with lovey-dovey claptrap and very little of fulfilling vows, lifelong vows. Then there's the sumptuous meals that follow and we have the toasts. Oh, that's a painful time in weddings the toasts, words spoken and spoken and spoken and spoken, all with very little meaning and very little in the way of prayers given for the couple. Oh, and let's not forget the cake. Oh, the cakes, they're, they're expensive, you know, they're monumental and they're, and they're beautiful. They really are gorgeous. They all taste like Crisco. And then finally, of course, in our wedding ceremonies today, there's lots of debt, and that usually falls upon the bride's family. It's not exactly an alluring vista that I've shown you here, but it is one that gives us the beginning point of a perspective we need. Gratefully, we're going to turn around in just a second, and we're going to look at the past, and we're going to actually see a vista of much greater grandeur. We're going to see through the fog of the future by looking at the past. Now, I know that seems a little oxymoronic, but believe me, it it makes sense as we go along. We are going to look through the fog of the future by looking into the past. So what's the biblical cultural context? This is critical if we're going to understand this metaphor of the Bride of Christ. In a Jewish wedding, there are three distinct parts. Um, I'm not talking Yiddish. I'm talking primarily Orthodox Jewish weddings. There are three distinct parts. And all of these three parts are very much a part of the metaphor of the Bride of Christ that we see in the New Testament. The first part of the wedding ceremony or process, if you will, is the covenant. And uh, Cindy, if you will bring up that picture for me, that one. I know you can't see it very well, but this is a handwritten document. Um, It is in Hebrew, so you wouldn't be able to read it if you could see it. I can't read it because it doesn't have the vowel signs in it. But it is handwritten, and it's written between the two fathers, or at least the leaders of the family. Right. Whoever is in charge of the particular family, they negotiate this contract, this covenant. Okay? And it has two primary parts. The first part of this contract is that the fathers decide on what the price for the bride is going to be. They call it the bride price. How much you got to pay to have this woman? It was standard practice, and in fact, in much of Judaism today, it is still practiced. And brides were expensive. You just didn't go and, you know, have one this week and have another one that week and one after that. No, brides were expensive. If you remember the story of Jacob, how many years did he work for his wife? Fourteen altogether to get the one he really wanted, seven to get the one he didn't want. 14 years. And the other thing that this document does is it defines the wife's rights in the marriage. It defines her rights by specifying what the husband's responsibilities are. What he must provide her. What he has to care for. For her. Now, once that contract is signed, then the the betrothal process begins, okay and traditionally betrothal ceremony begins with the bride and groom separately being immersed, and if you can change that slide, immersed in what is called a mikvah. A mikvah is the what we call a, a baptistry. It's a pool of water. It was used for ritual cleansing. It was used to indicate a spiritual cleansing. and both the bride, and the groom were immersed in the mikvah before the betrothal continued. Right? And then, after the immersion, and you can go to the next slide, the couple entered what is called the hupa. The hupa is simply what you see there. It is a makeshift shelter designed for the purpose of illustrating the building of a new house together and they would come together under that chuppah and they would say some things to each other they would say some vows but here's the most important thing that happened there the groom paid the bride's or betrothed father the bride price it was paid then now you may not know this but betrothal normally lasted at least one year. And it was often longer than that. But one year is probably a good average. It was a public ceremony. Although the couple were considered married at that point, they never lived together or engaged in any sexual relations until after the marriage but they were considered marriage. Now, during the betrothal period, both of them had some very important things to do. The husband, or the groom, had to go and prepare a place for his bride. He was responsible for building her a home, a place to live. And normally, that was an addition to his father's house. It was like a giant remodel project to add a room. It was an addition. And Jesus actually refers to this beautifully in John 14.3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now the bride during this period of time focused all of her personal preparations on a few things. First, weaving. She had to weave enough cloth for the garments for her and her maids. She had to take Uh, and sew the material into garments. She had to prepare oil, and she had to have lamps ready to go. And probably the most important thing she had to do, she had to wait. She waited not just in the corridor. She waited expectantly. And here's some of the things she did while she waited. She knew her groom would come, but she did not know when. It was never announced you know why? Because the father of the groom is the one that gave the permission for the groom to go and get the wife. But it is for that reason, because she didn't know when, but she knew to expect, that she waited with her lamps lit every evening. Christ refers to this in the parable of the ten versions virgins, not virgins. Um, He likened the kingdom of heaven to that. That's in Matthew 25, 6-7. I'll let you look at that on your own. And then last of all, this three-step process, if you will, last of all was the wedding itself. And in Judaism, this is called the taking. Did you hear what Jesus said? In Matthew, I mean in John, I will come and take you. That's not accidental wording. It is wording that reflects the ceremonial process of the wedding that is to take place. And when the groom came, it was really loud. There were trumpets. It was raucous. Everybody knew the groom's on his way to take his wife. And you know what he did? He gathered her up in his arms and he carried her to the hoopah and his new home for her. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Uh, poor Mary should have probably fallen on the floor. I, I don't think I could have done it. That. Maybe that's the other thing the groom does. Maybe he lifts weights during that period of time so that he can get ready for that. Not that you're heavy, dear. I didn't. Think that. <laughs> 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 but then the bride and groom enter that hoopah one more time and this time they recite their permanent vows to each other and often the wife would circle the groom seven times and then she'd stand on his right side seven stands for perfection in God's word it means completion and so that would signify that their vows were now complete And then, and only then, would they go together to the new home that he had prepared and enjoy all of the privileges and all of the benefits of a covenant marriage. Let me ask you, is it hard to see why scripture utilizes the bridal metaphor of covenant, betrothal, and wedding? to help us to see the relationship of Christ with his church? Is it hard to see that? Good, because I'm not going to spend time telling you all about it. Um, I don't have time to explore all of the parallels there. Go back and read it. And then I suggest, um, I might be getting ahead of myself here, but I do suggest that you take what I've shown you today about the covenant, the betrothal, and the wedding ceremony and that you then read through the New Testament with that in mind as you read. You will be astounded at how often that Christ and the apostles refer to this metaphor in talking about our lives as the body of Christ. But I want to focus today on the betrothal, because I think this is where we need the most help in understanding. Because of our cultural context and what we think of when we think of a bride, um, all made up, beautiful clothes, wonderful ceremony, lots of money, I think we need to have a clearer vision of what God thinks is beautiful. Before I do that though. I want to remind you of Hosea 2 19 to 20. You can read it later, but this is where God declares that He is the one betrothing. He is the one betrothing. He doesn't need anybody else. Not two parties, but one party making the decision. And He made it through covenant. All right. I did promise you, however, to show you beauty the beauty of this. Bride, I want to show you the beauty of the betrothed first. And I think, I think you might be a bit surprised at what the betrothed looks like. You know, we say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But honestly, I don't think that's true. I think beauty is actually in the eyes of the creator. And it is because he shares. With us that we are able to see beauty. Without him, sin clouds us into such a way that we have a hard time perceiving what is beautiful, and we often think what isn't beautiful is beautiful. We denigrate what is priceless, and we exalt what is worthless. Cindy pulled this up. Here is the best illustration that I could I have to tell you, Mary and I bought this photograph from an artist in Santa Fe. The moment I rounded the corner and saw this hanging, I started to cry. I've never had that kind of visceral response to a piece of art before. It overwhelmed me, and I realized this was in March. This was in March. I realized at that moment, Because Dan had already already laid out the plan for what was to be preached. But I realized in that moment, this is the beauty we need to see. This is the reality that we need to see. Let me describe her to you. Christ's betrothed, her beauty, does not come from braided hair or jewelry or fine clothing. As 1 Peter 3 says, it comes from the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Proverbs 31, 30 and 31, charm is deceitful, physical beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her work praise her in the gates. Christ's betrothed does not have a face made up with creams and colors and concealers and foundations. No, her face has a simple beauty. It shows deep burrows Cloud by nearly 2,000 years of hard work. Her face is browned by the hard work she puts in in the light of the sun. Her eyes are not filled and lined and contoured and painted, and her lashes are not elongated by mascara or fake extensions. No, her eyes are calm, and they are filled with the light of her beloved's face. She labors to please him and longs to see him, and you can see it in her eyes. Her lips are not painted to allure, disguised by liners, fillers, and lipstick. No, her lips are full, and the very words of Christ occupy her lips. Her ears are not adorned with rings and chains of gold or jewels. No, her ears are unadorned. Attuned, however, to the words of her Lord and Master Christ and to the cries of her children and the needs of those around her. And yet she is always listening for the voice of her groom. Always listening. Her hands are not creamed and soft. Her nails are not polished. Her fingers are not adorned with rings of gold and silver and platinum. Instead, her hands, I wish you could see this better, her hands are enlarged, enlarged from years of labor. And the evidence of the years of the difficult work she has done preparing for her bridegroom, can be seen in their rough and callous texture. Her feet are not soft, and her toenails are not polished. No, not this betrothed. She travels far without thought of her own feet because she's busy washing the feet of others. That's this betrothed. And something else you may not realize, this betrothed is not robed in sparkling, white, fine linen. Yet. Yet. The clothes she has been granted to wear will come later. Instead now she's robed in blood-stained garments of righteous work. Rough-woven, hand-sewn, stained, and often dirtied. By the hard work she's about. People, this is true beauty. This isn't the fading, fake, and falsified beauty of this age. This is the surpassing beauty of a faithful, patient, laboring betrothed. I want you to just take a minute and gaze on her beauty. Just for a moment, ask yourself, do you see beauty here? God's betrothed after nearly 2,000 years of waiting for him. No longer young. Still weaving, still preparing, kneading bread for the wedding feast. Pressing oil for her lamps. Lighting her lamps every evening in anticipation of her groom's arrival at any moment. This is true beauty. This is true beauty. And now we're going to turn and we're going to look up. We must see the bride of Christ also. And we must see all things made new. I've got to do this quickly because I know time is fleeting, But I am going to read quite a bit of Scripture to you, because if I don't, you will not get this. Because it's not my words that can give this to you, it is the word of Christ that can give this to you. So I'm going to read. I'm going to start here in Revelation 19 again. I'm going to read some portions from 20 and 21, and I will also read from 22. Hang in there with me. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen white and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In chapter 20, I'll begin reading in 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I'm going to skip to Revelation 21, and I'm going to read 27 verses. The first 27, 1 through 27. Please listen carefully. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. Amen. Amen. Now pay attention again. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these are trustworthy and true words. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen up. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the last plague, and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. People, this is the moment we've been waiting for, to see the bride. The angel has come for the purpose of showing us the bride. And he, that is the angel, carried me, that is John, away in the spirit where? To a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 gates had 12 angels and the gates and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which, by the way, is also the angel measurement. This wall was built of jasper. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacin, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw... They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Light. Did you see her? Did you see the bride of Christ here? She wasn't what you were expecting. She wasn't what I was expecting. She is far more beautiful than anything I could have imagined. All three of the metaphors we have talked about this last month are here. All three of them culminated here. The building, no longer under construction, but finished. Walls made of jasper, and not a single building, people, but a city a city. And then there's the body of Christ. Why do you think there's 12 foundations, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 gates, 12,000 stadia, and 144 cubits? They're all 12. And why 12? Because in Scripture 12 is the number that always signifies the, the elected called out of God. It always signifies his people, the body of Christ. This is the bride, this city of God. It is occupied by the body of Christ. His people gathered, dwelling with God forever. No more pain, sorrow, or evil. This bride is not a bride. This bride is the bride. The bride of Christ. All of the people of God joined into a single house in which the Spirit of God dwells. We are the house of Christ that Christ has been building. We are the people prepared for this place. We are the bride he will take and with whom we will dwell forever and ever. All who helped weave the white linen are now granted the right to wear it. The bride, yes, but also, if you read further there in the 19th chapter, you see that that's the same garments that the armies of God wear. Fine, bright, white linen, the church is weaving garments not only for herself but for the army of God. Do you understand the magnitude of the responsibility we have as the betrothed of Christ? Do you understand the beauty of that? That we with soiled, calloused hands in dirty garments stained and faces wrinkled have the privilege of weaving Fine white linen. How do you do that with soiled hands? You do it because of the blood of Christ that makes us clean. That's how we do it. Everyone whose name is a name appears in the Lamb's Book of Life is a weaver of fine white linen and will. Dwell with Christ forever as his bride. If you are here in this building today, and your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I have a question for you. Why not? Let me tell you how to get your name there. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come. Come. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those are the words of Christ. He... Paid the bride price. His blood for yours and for mine. His life for yours and for mine. Come, is that so much to have? Is that such a big price? To have your name written in the Lamb's book of life and then to be able to participate in this revelation How could you not want to be a stone of jasper building the wall of this city? How could you not want to dwell in the new Jerusalem in which God dwells? How could you not want to be joined with Christ and dwell in such magnificent splendor and peace and joy forever? Come, And to those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, I want you to stand with me now. We're going to sing a song of gratefulness to Lord. It's a song of grateful amazement